Reviews and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that are read for the last 40 years. And today I have my special guest. She is the author of several books, no other than Miss Sapa Bernal. Hi, hi, hi. Hello, everybody. My name is Safa Burnell. I am a Canadian cyberpunk and mythpunk author. I am the author of the Judge of Mystics saga. There's four books to that saga and a fifth one coming out next year. Uh, We've already discussed on this wonderful channel, a book 101 review, Char and Ash, which is book one, and book two, Son of Abel, Book three, Book of Revels, and book four, Ginnungagap, just last week. So please do go back and listen to all of these amazing podcasts. I am so glad to have these interviews. They're just fantastic uh, with, with Danny Lucas. The Judge of Mystics series is a work of myth punk, aka taking mythology with a more postmodern styling and lens, using some form of surreality, some form of, you know, kind of time dilation, time distortion, different sort of postmodern narrative techniques and subversions to the folklore and myth of old, something I do with my main character, Caleb Matheson, and the roving band of gods, spirits, ghouls, and monsters that he deals with in the Judge of Mystics saga. Well, interesting, uh, Ms. Burnell. Yes, as Ms. Bernal said, please do listen to a previous episode because the Mystic Saga we compared to, well, famous authors, people like Miss Madeline Miller, Neil Gaiman, and of course the timeless Edith Hamilton. Miss Bernal, let's talk about your other side of the moon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Writing poetry. Yes, this is actually where I started. So I began my publishing career with poetry. Poetry was always one of my very first loves. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's going to be something fun. else. Yes. Yeah. So what is the big difference of writing a poetry and writing a novel? I think with poetry, you have to be so much more conservative with your word choices, as in In a novel, you have, you know, 4,000 words a chapter to convey some form of emotion or idea. And in poetry, you've got maybe 100 words, maybe 50, depending on on how long the poem is. Most of my poems are not not epics. They're not the uh, ode to uh, Hyperion by Keats. Let me say it that way. Uh, One of my favorite poems, by the way, like no shade on Keats. I love Keats. Absolutely. Ode to Hyperion got me into poetry. Um, I think... Being able to leave people with that sort of snapshot or Polaroid picture or, you know, that that short but meaningful, impactful moment of the mind that somebody could read and move on. And that would be nice. But if they stopped and read it again and took another look, they would see layer upon layer upon layer of heteroglossic content. And that one poem could be expanded outward into something which could take as much time as a chapter of a book, but it's just one poem. And so I love that 
differentiation, that re release from a lot of, you know, grammatical rules and things like that, that you can do in poetry, especially if you're being a little bit more experimental and a little bit less on, you know, the kind of standard forms of poetry, like, you know, sonnet and haiku and things. I like being able to paint that momentary picture, leave somebody with a visceral image that stays put, and then expand on that image and the meaning of it uh, through ways that one, have my own interpretation, but two, really use that reader response, you know, that form of literary criticism where you're putting something out there, like a poem like Gentle Rage, which is in Usurper Kings, which was written about my time in the film industry. And anybody could read that poem and get something slightly different. And all of those differentiations, how poetry reflects the reader, as well as reflecting the poet themselves, all of those things have such a fantastic value. And I love it, you know? <laughs> Oftentimes I think that with novels, if you have some, you know, some chapters and things like that, that can be taken in seven different ways, by the end of your novel, what are the readers going to understand? What are they going to know about this story? You know, I think we need to be a little bit more concrete in where we intend the readers to take our work. When it comes to a narrative story, especially something like the Judge of Mystic Saga, where I've got, you know, four books and another, a fifth one on the way for next year. So if somebody gets something radically different out of Char and Ash, by the time they get to Son of Abel, that might not align in their headspace. They might have to be like, wait, what? What? How did I get that? Wait a minute. Let's go back and read. Oh, okay. Maybe I see it. Maybe I see it now. But in poetry, we have this place where we can both experiment and be more rebellious and be more subversive and be more overt in some ways and more hidden in others, where if somebody takes one of my poems a certain way, it's not going to necessarily change the way they interpret the rest of the work. So you mean to say that poetry is easier to do or something else that you like? I think... I think my creative writing professor, when I was in university, said it best. You know, we were talking, she, she did poetry and short stories and then, you know, novel planning with us and things like that the whole way through. And she told us once that when you write a novel, if you cannot write the poem, you don't know your novel well enough. And it seems like such a weird thing to say, but in her mind, a poem can be so condensed down that it could have the same amount of meaning as a novel, or you could be able to distill a novel and its essence and what you want the readers to expect and what you want the readers to understand down into the essence of a poem. Uh, the way I think about it too, I think, you know, there's the iconic statement by um, Virginia Woolf. You know, I apologize, my dear, in writing you this letter the long way round. I did not have time to write the short. I think when you look at poetry, it takes so much more time to condense things down. It's not necessarily that, you know, one is more fun than the other, but I think there are different spots in the mind where, you know, yes, when I'm writing a novel, I can write, you know, a good four to 5,000 words an hour. I get in the mode. I just, there we go. My fingers are going like crazy. You can see steam coming up from the keyboard. Um, if I spend that hour writing poetry, I might get 
one done. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I think it takes a lot more time to kind of be so intentional about what word goes specifically where and how that's going to affect not only the form of the poetry, but also the images, the symbology, and the meaning that readers can glean from it. So I, I think they're they're both valuable and they're both wonderful, but they both come from slightly different places. Ms. Bernal, informing poetry, what are the criteria that you're putting to yourself? When I wrote Usurper Kings, you know, Usurper Kings, uh, the 10th anniversary edition came out this year. That to me is wild. <laughs> it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since Usurper Kings. Oh my goodness. Uh, I wrote it in five acts. And I did a different impression of the feminine in each act based on hunter-gatherer civilization, based on agricultural civilizations, based on kind of the enlightenment and then modern day, and then all the way to the existential singularity potential in the future. So going into kind of transhumanism for the future in the fifth, in the fifth act. So in the acts where I was within a time period of like, you know, an agrarian culture kind of growing into the medieval age and then going into the enlightenment, those ones, I have many sonnets, I have odes, I have works which were done, formed after skaldic poetry uh, from a Norse perspective. I stuck to the form that I wanted to stick to. So tons of sonnets, tons of of things like that, tons of odes. For the work that I did later on in the poetry collection, when we go on to with that sort of sense of modern, I break free of that. And I allow stanzas to be a little bit more unique and rebellious. I change my word choices. I don't necessarily follow rhyme. You know, for me though, I love a classic. So I love making sure that it has some form of intentional rhyming structure, that there is some form of, you know, clear stanza structure. You know, I love being able to use form as a skeleton. Uh, So I'm less free form for the most part. And I do follow on, you know, my different kinds of sonnet forms. I do follow... Uh, those odes I do follow um, a little bit more closely to those kind of old school standards, especially when it comes to rhyming schemes and things. Uh, and then I allow myself freedom when the context allows it as well. I find that doesn't necessarily answer your question perfectly, but I do, you know, look at the structure of the poem. I do like using those rules. I do like using those kind of traditional poetic models as that foundational building block, which I then can tweak a little bit here and there as I go. But I feel like if I have those structures, what I can do with those structures is almost infinite. So I'm not necessarily always going to let them go and be totally free form. I'm going to allow myself freedom within certain forms and then kind of break those forms as I go. Very well said, Ms. Bernal. But before we go on, I want to shout out to my ranking tabs in the last 30 days, according to my Apple charts. In United Republic of Tanzania, I got 
Canada number 36, Pat Canada number 68, Malaysia number 70, Norway at number 12, Zimbabwe at number 15, Cambodia number 18, United Arab Emirates at 27, Indonesia 38, Hong Kong at 125, Zambia at 144, Chile at 145, Nepal at 160, Mongolia at 179, Turkey at 196, and last but not the least, Libya at 211. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world, like me, Safa Bernal. Miss Bernal, you super kings, how did you craft this poetry book? <clears throat> all right, so I broke it down to the five different acts. And then I started with a, I started with a few basic, I call them basic, but they're not basic. I started with a few poems. The term usurper kings actually came from me doing research in my uh, religious studies, you know, education at university about Angkor Wat. And there was this statement in a textbook that we were talking about Angkor Wat. Uh, and it talked about a series of usurper kings who took the temple complex over. And that idea of this incredible, beautiful, just so integral to the world, you have to preserve it, um, temple and religious and spiritual complex, you know, the idea of it being constantly taken over in certain parts of history and sort of what happens there, it hit me very hard upside the head and so the first poem i actually wrote in the usurper king's collection was the poem anchor wat and uh, it starts off with she wears the title like shapewear and rouge and a foreign model drained of homeland influence and going from there i was able to sort of find the structure of discussing womanhood discussing the feminine uh discussing both the mightiness the humility you know the the whole kind of gamut there of the feminine through time you know and when we start we start off in generosis with that sense of creation and what does it mean what is creation like if we created the universe what would it be like and then going from that creation story to you know the stories of Hera and Athena, Pallas Minerva. You know this uh, this sense of cosmogenic choreography, this sense of cosmogonic creation, that sort of creation story all over again, and the role of womanhood and the role of just the feminine in any act of creation. And then I took that and went, okay, now that things are created, where do we go? We go into even the other, which is Act Two. And that one has, you know, it starts off with Angkor Wat and it goes to poems like Sacrificial King, which was, you know, one of the poems. There's a few poems in here that were directly related to experiences I had. Other poems, which were more fantastical, they were more, you know, obviously I don't have a, um, <laughs> I, I don't have an experience in my head where I've met the, you know, the Queen of Heaven, Mighty, Mighty Hera, you know. <laughs> oh, I love Hera. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's a lot of fun. Uh, she's in Diadem de Lorraine de Ciel. Um, you know, obviously mythological figures I have not met in person, but the poem Sacrificial King, for instance, was about meeting this genuinely lovely person this this lovely man in a coffee shop 
who was, you know, speaking in broken English, trying to tell me that he was from, um, he was from Russia. And then, you know, he's just kind of looking to get into the dating scene and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's less lovely. You know, I only know enough Russian to listen to Vysotsky. And, you know, just us having a conversation that we both do a good two, three minutes into the conversation would be the only conversation we'd ever have in our lives. And for some reason, it just stuck, you know, knowing that you have this one moment with a person and then you're never going to have that moment again. And so I immortalized it in the poem, Sacrificial King. Um, so, Miss, so, Miss Bernal, can you read some of the part of Angkor Wat? Angkor Wat. She wears the title like shapewear and rouge on a foreign model. Drained of homeland influence, infused with coffee and vodka, Dodanon is the hip-bearing mother of cultured generations, which owe her despite the bitter conception. She is taught the opposite of gravity, spun spines hitched up, supported in dainty, voluptuous columns of our own fickle design. Euronime's pageant breaks quiet stone, women goddesses stroking the emblems which in past eons made worshippers of frightened, mystified men. The river and springs reflect evil Medusa, man-killing snake. She stole his kingly divinity and stomped on his libido. Kali, goddess of rending teeth, whose libido satisfied has no use but violent hunger and annihilation of weaker intent. Hera, whose diadem reigned in infinitum before her brother husband bound in matrimony. Cuckled queen, her silence over dishonor he imposed. Or frail Hestia, draped across her pale, dusted hearth, making eyes and folding clothes for her conqueror king, who won her from devious Lancelot Attila. Uranos' foam daughter, Olympian's gambit, Aphrodite poses too, in the frothing spring halfway off her cockle shell, to bewitch and undermined male decency, obedient to animal passion and delight, the allowable power of woman, to capture and be caught, spun in fresco for generations, to gaze upon, mother, mother, how pretty you looked. Ascetic women, unconscionable or uncaptured, must not infect the proud tradition of putting usurpers on her throne. Wow. Interesting, Ms. Bernal. If you want to go back and revise the book itself, which part of the book you want to revise? Ooh, there's one poem. <laughs> there's a specific poem <laughs> called, <laughs> called Planet Fall. Uh, and Planet Fall was one of those poems that when I was working with my um, editor, I was like, ah, you know what, if if we need something that it's quite a large poem, it takes up quite a few pages, you know, because it's more of an ode, uh, you know, just kind of that sort of a little bit more epic. But, you know, if we need it for page count, I can I can give it to you. But I am, I'm not really sure about it. I don't know. Like, ah, you know, I was wambling uh, around the poem. And so I gave it to him and he was like, yeah, no, we need it. I was like, well, well, no, like, I need to edit it. Like, let, let's, let's work. Let's, can we workshop this poem? <laughs> and he's like, nope, it's good the way it is. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> and I was clearly like, I wanted to take another crack at it. Um, but strangely, Planet Fall has been the poem that whenever I've had reviews from um, members of a more male persuasion, uh, for some reason, Planet Fall is their favorite. At least this has happened, uh, you know, a good dozen times where I've had people come to me and be like, oh, my God, that, that poem Planet Fall is amazing. I'm like, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something else. 
Yeah, you know, I, I could have uh, I could have made it better. It is quite the long poem. It does take up quite a few pages. Um, and it is more of a story. So it is more of a narrative poem. And I think that might be the reason just because it is the, uh, the story. Of course, it's science fiction. So it's the story of a um, basically a starfighter uh, who gets into a dogfight with another starfighter. They land on an alien planet and then find out that um, they need to help each other get away from the planet. Of course, it's a male and a, and a female. And then the female ends up, like they basically fall in love. The female ends up getting back home where her lover was waiting for her and trying to figure out what to do. Also, she kept very quiet because she knew that it was worth her life, you know, to not say what actually happened on the planet below. She wanted to protect the the guy that she ended up um you know, being rescued with. And uh, so in the end of it, it's basically her kind of coming home. Fury, little Fury, what do you hide? The wind asked as once she lied and tugged a string of gold beneath the fabric of her demise. You know, it's 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 quite the dramatic poem. I, that's definitely the one I'm like, oh, planet fall. Yeah. <laughs> the one place in the book I redo. <laughs> Which poem did you enjoy the most? I think for different reasons, I've got a couple. Um, I think Act 4 and Act 5. Um, Act 4 is Chaos Machines and the people who buy them. And then Act 5 is the Universe Child. Both of those acts are one poem each. And the Chaos Machines and the people who buy them is... Again, quite a long poem. It is meant to be spoken word. And I think I, at the time, had, you know, some might call it delusions of grandeur, uh, this idea that I would <laughs> perform um, Chaos Machines and somehow get it out there and things like that. It never happened. Uh, that's okay. You know, it can happen later. That one was a lot of fun to write because I got to be very tongue in cheek about the culture we were in back, you know, in the 2010s and what will happen to culture in the future. And I make a lot of transhumanist and futurist claims in chaos machines and the people who buy them, which it's been interesting to see in the past 10 years, several of them have come true. <laughs> So oh, I'm wow. like, okay, that was a lot of fun. I did have a lot of fun writing that one. Uh, I think when it comes to which one I enjoyed writing the most, I would probably have to say either Cosmogenic Choreography or Diadem de la Reine de Ciel, my poem about Hera. Um, I mean, obviously, you know that I, I love a good Hera, um, Hera motif. There's also the Helen of Troy cycle that I have in here, which is a four-part cycle I actually wrote within one day. Uh, and it was while I was a producer in the um, film and television industry. And it's about a shoot. It's about a um, TV pilot we were doing. Uh, and it starts off with gentle rage, you know, this, this, this poem about an actor. Uh, getting you know cut into a bodysuit for costuming and then neon lights madonna and it ends with poseidon and i think emotionally especially at the time back in you know 2010 when it was written it was something which gripped my soul which i look at now and go oh how cute <laughs> 
you know, yes, I see value in those poems, but I am such a different person now than I was, you know, 13 years ago. And there's this young, wide-eyed person in their 20s looking around trying to, to get into film and making decisions that ended up with this poem Poseidon, which, you know, you'll have to, you'll have to read the tone, but it's not exactly the most happy poem in the world. That's okay, though. Uh, we need those cathartic poems as well. Um, I think the poem that I've had the most negative feedback on, just from a rebellious standpoint, would be Mary Magdalene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, Miss uh, Burnell, can you recite some of the stanza of the poem about Hera? Absolutely. Diadem de la Reine du Ciel. Heavy-lidded queen, painted in light's ample twin, Janos-faced shadow coats your regal brow. Your brow pulled smooth, deliberate chisel, deliberate carver's demands. Plated hair waves a raucous sea, your brother. Iris has yet to stir within blank, smooth eyes, lips stray beneath a ruler-straight nose. Full, supple as your dignity, as your thousand-year reign. Stricken diadem, your godly divinity lacks the smoothness of your brow. Cheeks mottled, chips ground out of age wounds to immortal marble elixirs. You cast a scar-gouged eye downward, sideways, patience, woman. Across the circular pantheon were images of your brother, husband, sister, children, son, uncles, castrati, grandfathers reside in crumbling effigy. Comme vous, like you, comme toi, like you. Votre crown est fermant, your crumbling crown repose mal sur votre fierté. Rests ill on your pride. Mais votre beauté, but your beauty, c'est la légende, is legend, idée, ideal, sacré, sacred. It hushes as your serendipitous family was hushed by a carpenter whose crucifix struck an emperor's eye and rolled his stone away. Amazing, Ms. Burnell. And how about Magdalene? Ooh, a Mary Magdalene. So this Mary one Magdalene. is uh, quite subvertive. You know, myself as uh, somebody who has been part of the Christian faith, um, I wrote a poem basically out of frustration as somebody who, again, was raised in, in a Christian home about the treatment of Mary Magdalene outside of scripture, because... Uh, as uh, many people who are potentially scholars would know, there's very little in the Bible said about Mary Magdalene and very much that was made of her throughout uh, different eras in, you know, kind of Christian history. Uh, a lot of what was said about Mary Magdalene in Christian history was not the kindest, you know, uh, especially when you look at this figure who was somebody who learned at, you know, whatever you, I'm not going to get into religion, but, you know, just from the story aspect uh, you know, he, from a literary aspect, you have this character who was one allowed to sit at Jesus's feet and learn. And then when the biggest news in the entire scripture needed to be given, it was given by this, this person, by Mary Magdalene. So I, in a fit of <laughs> a fit of rage, I wrote something which a lot of uh, traditional Christian people have told me is like, oh, it's like, well, <laughs> did I say something wrong? <laughs> like, be wrong, you know? Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Mary Magdalene, can we hear some of this yes. answer? Mary Magdalene was Jesus's secret wife. They said to diminish her, to put her in her marital place, the only place. If Mary wasn't effing Jesus, why was she there? It couldn't be for attitudes and sentiments worth salt. 
manly pursuits of mental worth. Jesus knew best. She gathered food and sat at his feet, where the eyes which made angels swoon with their might, with their mercy, taught Mary every principle of human divine interrelation. Six days before his crucifixion, she poured her alabaster jar and cried salt tears on Jesus' feet, washing him with raven locks. Bride of Christ, she became church, Christ's most tender love, presented an adoration to the Father, omnipater who in godly divinity birthed bliss where once had rested scars. Pillar of resurrection, did Mother Mary hold her as daughters are held after the stone rolled away? Interesting indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it was that idea that we get, you know, in a lot of places where, oh, no, 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 no. You see, Mary Magdalene, she must have been Jesus's wife. That's why she's there. <laughs> and it's like, there's no, there's no record of that. She's yes. allowed to be there just because she's there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So let's hear about Madonna. So this one's going to be a little bit different. This one is part of the Helen of Troy cycle. And, um, you know, props to Macromacrocosm Literary Review for first uh, publishing it before it got into this collection. Um, <clears throat> this one's going to be a little bit more different. Painted virgin, lonely virgin, Mary after Jesus' birth, shaking, waiting for hope to turn to her corner of the globe. Taste her, Joseph. Turn her pursed mouth and mangle pert pink lips, swollen with the fright and exertion of the dance floor. Gaze upon him, head tilted in desire, fond complacence. One snarling kiss must fill fantasies with its triumph. She knows what she wants. Oh. <laughs> so if you compare Miss Bernal, Madonna and Mary Magdalene, which is more easy to write? I think Mary Magdalene happened very quickly. It was, again, that moment of rage where uh, I was like, that's not how it's, oh, you know, and sat down at my keyboard and was like, -da 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 -da, and then Mary Magdalene was done. So it happened in a fury, you know, in this, this moment of upset in my, in my soul. Madonna is actually something I wrote after the experience. We were doing a fundraiser for a TV pilot that we were on and it was at a, um, it was at a, a club. And, you know, obviously, you know, if you bought shots or did whatever, you know, that all that money would go towards, you know, go, go towards the shoot. And here was I, somebody who had really, really pretty much never been kissed, you know, at the time. You know, I, I had no experience with dating and things like that. I was all career, 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 that kind of thing. And uh, there was that moment of, you know, drunken revelry where we're dancing and an opportunity came. <laughs> and it was just like oh <laughs> and it was that idea of what would be in someone's mind what would be you know um in the mind of the madonna like just where do you go with that energy where do you go with that energy of you know this this painted virgin you know and both both taking from the representation of um the madonna aka mary the mother of Jesus from, you know, Orthodox and Catholic cathedrals where you have all these painted images and icons and, you know, reliquaries and things like that. So looking at it from both that sort of rebellion from religion standpoint, and also looking at it from the standpoint of what would it have been like for this young woman, again, going into the story behind it, not the, the politics or the religion. I put those aside you know, the story behind it of this young woman who 
had really never experienced any of that kind of thing. All of a sudden she's walking around with a child and there's this, you know, this Joseph figure in front of her. What does she do? Do you think you miss something personality that you want to include? I think the personality that I included in a lot of the poems was quite autobiographical in certain ways. You know, I think that it was me struggling with the idea of femininity and what a woman meant. You know, this is also a time period in my life where I was the only female instructor in a martial arts academy. And I was teaching martial arts and, you know, running the school and things like that. And being, you know, that sort of woman in a man's world, you, you really start to realize it when you are the only female in the building, you know, for day after day after day after day. So I think the personality of Usurper Kings is somebody in their early 20s trying to discover what these disparate parts of womanhood are and what they mean to her. You know, um, starting off with this sort of, you know, cerebral, cosmological sort of, you know, let's start with this sort of outside place where it's all very esoteric and it's all very like, you know, Hera and Athena and it's all, you know, kind of this kind of thing and Angkor Wat. And, and then I slowly bring it closer and closer and closer to my experiences as myself and what I was struggling with being, you know, a woman in a man's world, what I was struggling with being this, you know, young person in their 20s trying to get into the industry as a producer and all of the things that went on, all of the baggage that comes along with that, you know, and then from that slow pull and draw into something very personal, it's almost like I reach the middle of that sort of personalness in uh, Time Masters and the Cogs which is part three, is act three. And then once I finish the Time Masters and the Cogs kind of place, which is where, you know, Helen of Troy Cycle is and all that kind of thing. Once I get past Defend Her, all of a sudden, boom, we are out back as esoteric again. We are exiting that really narrow view and bringing it back out to everyone. And so it was almost, you know, this expansion, contraction, then re-expansion at the end to leave us at the end with a more kind of global view of, of the personality of the her in this, um, in this collection. In total, Ms. Burnell, user of Kings is to empower women. It is to empower women. It is also to have something enjoyable to read, to kind of be a little rebellious with. I think it's something that, you know, I've had quite a few gentlemen uh, read and have positive things to say about as well. So nowhere in here really am I lambasting masculinity. Instead, I'm trying to understand how masculinity fits with femininity. So I think it's very important for me just as a person and as a writer to recognize that the idea of being feminine, the idea of being, you know, whatever label you want to put on it. I'm not, I'm like Margaret Atwood. I'm not somebody that usually uses dash ist, you know, on anything because I don't know what definition somebody else would have. But as somebody who, you know, looks at that concept of, of, of womanhood and things like that, I think it's very important to recognize that womanhood and manhood are equals. 
and both powerful and both wonderful and both under attack. And so being able to take a look at the feminine and take a look at womanhood while also in certain poems like Planet Fall, where, you know, our masculine hero ends up being the hero um, in the end, you know, there's also poems like Proximity, uh, Adam slash Eve. That's another poem that has uh, both perspectives in it. You know, I'm your boss and you are a woman, um, wage dance, and then going on into chaos machines. It's that sense that in order for this world and for our cultures to, you know, repair things that have gone wrong, we have to make sure we're coming together and allowing all sides to be strong. Very well said, Ms. Vernell. But before we go on, I'm inviting you to listen to my other podcast, Geography 101. Geography 101 is created to empower places that I visited from Europe, Caribbean, North America, South America, Asia, and a lot more. So please do listen to Geography 101. Ms. Vernell, can you please invite our listeners to buy all your boots? Hello, everybody. Welcome again. (laughs) (laughs) I would be immensely grateful if you purchased my books, either in digital, paperback, or hardcover. Um, I have several books for sale right now, including Usurper Kings, Neon Lieben, Futures Lens, Son of Abel, Charmed Ash, and the upcoming, by the time this is posted, there will be another book called Warp Lens, in which my story, The Cottonmouth Smile, um, becomes a part uh, if you want more information on where to purchase my books or more information on myself, you can go to safaburnell.com. That is S-A-P-H-A-B-U-R-N-E-L-L.com and uh, receive more information on myself, my work, and my weekly Twitch streams. So if you are a author or a writer or a poet and you want eyes on your prose, we have community workshops and live beta reads Every week, every Tuesday and Thursday, live on Twitch at Usurper Kings, because Usurper Kings is where you can find me across all social media platforms. If there is a Usurper Kings, it's going to be me. <laughs> Definitely. Miss Safa Bernal. Is this your debut book, Miss Bernal? Usurper Kings was my debut, yes. What did you learn from it? I learned that poetry is a place where you can be as radical as you want you know, and as rebellious as possible, rebellion is, is a good thing. I learned that I needed more time to grow as a person before I tackled the novels I wanted to tackle, like Neon Lieben and Charned Ash and Son of Abel. I also learned that the experience of working with an editor is such an incredible, beautiful thing, you know, and yes, it can have those moments of frustration, but I wouldn't have traded that, you know, for anything. Um, I I also learned that you can be a little bit more subversive and more rebellious in something like poetry where experimentation is the, you know, the name of the game than you necessarily can in a book that you're hoping to have commercial appeal. So to me, poetry is that place where I get to, you know, take the weighted clothing off if we want to go with a Dragon Ball Z reference there Um, (laughs) (laughs) expand out and just be as visceral as possible and then when i'm writing my books my novels i get to be a little bit more cognizant 
of certain choices, you know, certain vocabulary choices and things. And, you know, I had the comment several times from several different people in the Usurper Kings. Wow. Yeah, it was really good. I loved it. Like the poems, they were amazing. I had to look up a bunch of the words. And I was like, well, I could do that in poetry. I don't think I could necessarily do that in a novel. <laughs> Ms. Bernal, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it yet again. Thank you, Mr. Lucas. You're so, so wonderful. Yes, people love support Ms. Bernal because if you support her, more and more books to come. So let's support indie author people because they're giving something else. So, Bodycon people, see you soon. Have a good Sunday. You too. Thank you. I'll see you, everybody.